Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James Bijan. Thank you to Brian Motes, who is uh, recording, and he'll be editing out all of the snafus and all the throat clears and all the other noises and grunts and things that, uh, that defile our podcast. We are in the midst of a podcast series on the book of Deuteronomy, and we're currently in chapter 23. We've gone roughly halfway through that chapter, and we came to a break with uh, verse 14 of chapter 23. That, I'm going to say, was the end of the seventh word section of Deuteronomy. Uh, and verse 15 of chapter 23 is the beginning of the eighth word section of Deuteronomy. The eighth word, of course, is thou shalt not steal. And the eighth word section of Deuteronomy is concerned with property, it's concerned with loans, and uh, some other things that don't seem as directly relevant to um, the eighth word, but we'll have to think about how they how they fit in under this rubric as we go through. The question with this particular section of Deuteronomy is the question of where it ends. We've been relying on James Jordan's book, Covenant Sequence in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, uh, and he outlines the book of Deuteronomy, and this section of Deuteronomy he shows is following through the Ten Commandments, and he finds the conclusion of the eighth word section in chapter 24, verse 7, which is a law against kidnapping and, and prescribes a death penalty for kidnapping. Man-stealing uh, is the last form of stealing that's covered here. Uh, and then verse 8 talks about an infection of leprosy, guard against an infection of leprosy, and it invokes the example of Miriam, uh, who attacked Moses and damaged his reputation. And so Jordan argues that that's the beginning of the ninth word section about false witness. Uh, the problem with that is that we very quickly go back into the kinds of issues that fit more comfortably under the seventh word, or the eighth word rather, uh, under the command uh, not to steal. So after the reference to leprosy and Miriam, uh, we have a question about pledges in verse 10 through 13, paying wages to hired servants in verses 14 and 15, uh, not perverting justice to an orphan widow in a pledge. Uh, we have rules of gleaning at the end of the chapter 24. All of those seem to fit kind of neatly under the eighth word section rather than the seventh word section. So at least arguably eighth word rather than the ninth word section, sorry. Arguably the eighth word section, the thou shalt not steal section actually extends beyond verse seven of chapter 24. Uh, and I think there may be structural reasons this is a proposal. You can contest my proposal. We may have to revise it, or I may have to revise it as we go. But I think the reasons to think the entirety of chapter 24 is part of the eighth word section. A couple of structural things that seem that potentially indicate that. Uh, first off, uh, if 2315, I'm going to stipulate that that's the beginning of the eighth word section, and it's about fugitive slaves. You shall not hand over... Uh, to his master, a slave who has escaped from his master to you. That's the beginning of the eighth word section. It's about a fugitive slave. And as the fugitive has the fugitive slave stolen himself from his master in such a way that he must be returned to the master. We'll talk about this further, but the answer is no, he doesn't have to be, he shouldn't be returned to his master. Uh, then at the end of chapter 24, we again uh, return to concerns about slavery. Uh, in this case, a reminder that Israel was enslaved and the Lord redeemed them. Verse 18, uh, after the rule about uh, justice in, in particularly in taking a widow's garment for a pledge, remember that the Lord redeemed you from Egypt. You were slave in Egypt. The very last verse of chapter 24, 
Remember that you were a slave in Egypt, therefore I'm commanding you to do this thing. So there seems to be a bookend from verses 23, 15 to 24, 18 and 22 with slavery as the topic. Uh, more narrowly, there seems to be a connection between the end of chapter 23, which is a rule about scrumping. You can, if you're going alongside a field and you find, um, if you're hungry and you uh, you can pick grapes from your neighbor's vineyard, you can take grain from his field uh, enough to fill your stomach. That's at the end of right at the end of verse uh, of chapter 23, uh, and then the closely related laws concerning gleaning uh, are found in chapter 24, right at the end of chapter 24, verses 19 through 22. And those two related laws uh, surround a section that, as by my count, includes nine different specific laws with a rhythm of two laws and then a law concerning pledges. So there's a law concerning divorce, there's a law concerning taking a new wife, and then there's a law concerning pledges. Then there's the prohibition of kidnapping, and then there's the law concerning leprosy, and then there's a rule concerning pledges. Uh, and then there are pay your workers their wages, and then there's justice uh, regarding fathers and sons, uh, and then another rule concerning pledges. So bump, bump, pledge, bump, bump, pledge, bump, bump, pledge. And that's all in between these two sections that have to do with uh, your field being accessible to people other than the owner. Uh, fields have to be accessible to Hungry people are passing by. They have to be accessible to the aliens, orphans, and the widows who are gleaning in the field. That forms the frame around this section. And then you have this rhythm going through where you keep coming back to the question of pledges and different rules about taking pledges on loans. So that's my proposal. If you have any immediate feedback or criticism of that proposal, we can we can entertain that. Uh, or we can leave that as a proposal and see if it bears out as we go through this section of Deuteronomy. Let's see how, see how it works. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess the, uh, we should just plunge in. I think the this a number of specific things that are going on in the latter part of chapter 23 that are quite interesting. The first one has to do, as I said, with fugitive slaves uh, who have escaped from their master and they are uh, not returned to the master. You shall not hand over to his master a slave who escaped from his master to you, and then verse 16 elaborates on that. This is a, a quite a dramatic, we talked about uh, in previous episodes, particularly the, the la very last, very, very most recent episode about Israel having countercultural rules. This is a countercultural. If you received a runaway slave in many ancient cultures, that was a, that was a serious offense. And, and uh, slaves that ran away from the masters were also under the threat of serious punishments. But here, slaves may escape and they're they're given their freedom, uh, and not just freedom, as we'll see in, when we get to verse 16. But uh, the question that comes up here is, who are we talking about? Are we talking about like a, a bond servant within Israel who's paying off a debt? If he escapes from you know uh, Beersheba up to Bethlehem, does somebody in Bethlehem receive him and, and he's free because he escaped from his... Uh, from that bond servitude, or as many commentators suggest, are we talking about fugitive slaves from outside Israel? Do you think it covers both? Does it cover one or the other? Is it more likely to cover one or the other? Or is this uh, a slave that has been rescued, been delivered from a, uh, a severe master 
So the word there used in verse 15, not Saul, is the same word used up there in verse 14 when God delivers you from your enemies. So is, is it possible that a determination has been made once this man escapes and dwells in your midst and a determination has been that there's been a, a master who has been abusive and harsh. That's also a possibility, it seems to me. Yeah, that that would fit the passive sense of it, um, or middle, or however you want to think of it, like who has been released from his master. I mean, I wonder if to you is significant. I, I was thinking about um, initially from a foreign country, but then I was thinking, what if someone was in like a, a Canaanite-run town or something and has, has gone into, I mean, it's talking in large part about the assembly, isn't it? The chapter, although I guess we might have a, a break here, but I was, I was wondering if sort of coming into a more Israel-controlled area could be in mind. Yeah, th- I like uh, Jeff's suggestion. I think that uh, this would seem to potentially to cover that. It's Is the sense, uh, James can help me, is it the sense that uh, he's delivered himself, as it were, or is it your? Or are we talking about somebody who has intervened in a situation where the slave needs to be rescued? What is the the verb form there? It's a nifal. Is that is that um, just be rescued by somebody, or is it uh, the slave taking the initiative and escaping? Well, I, I feel like it could. I'd want to look into it a bit, but I, I would suspect it could be either. Um, kind of like the middle in Greek, I guess. In, in that it could like for, I don't know. To gather in Hebrew would be a, a nifal, and it could be you've been gathered. You know, it could be passive, or it could be more middle, like you've gathered your, yourself. It feels like it's um, um, deliberately unspecific, but it, it would go with Jeff's suggestion quite quite well, I think. Yeah, and that would it also fit with other things that are required of uh, masters of Israelite bond servants in the slavery passages in Deuteronomy. We've talked about this before, but uh, just to reiterate. Israelites could be come into a kind of bond servitude to other Israelites, but it was always temporary. There was a terminus to it. Uh, it was uh, they would release, be released in the Sabbath year, and the circumstances where that would happen would be a brother, a fellow Israelite who's become poor, who needs to get back on his feet. He would become a bond servant in a house of another. If somebody has incurred a debt and needs to pay it off, then he could become a bond servant of the person to whom he pays it off. If he's committed a property crime. That would be a kind of indebtedness. He needs to pay it back, and he's not capable of paying it back. Then he would pay it back by becoming a bondservant. Uh, and in those circumstances, there are explicit requirements that the masters treat them with kindness and gentleness, not mistreat them. Uh, and so if they do mistreat them, then and the slave escapes or is set free by some intervention from, from somebody else, then he's not to go back to his master. And presumably, if he's paying off a debt, then the master would be forfeiting his debts, you know, by mistreating the slave because the slave gets away and he's he's free to get away. Uh, I think it would also apply. It seems it would also apply to slaves that are escaping, as James was suggesting, from into Israelite-controlled territory, from non-Israelite-controlled territory, uh, and they wouldn't be returned to their previous masters. Yeah, and that might be normally what's going on here. It would it would seem to me that if, again, this is a big if, uh, because. Israel, like all of us, don't always uh, follow through on obeying the law, but um, it would seem like there wouldn't be as much of this within Israel 
as there would be outside of Israel when slaves were treated as chattel. So maybe ordinarily this would be someone who comes and who wants to dwell among you in your midst and who comes into one of your towns. Um, that could refer to someone just moving within the land, but it also probably refers ordinarily to foreigners who come and escape from their uh, their slave masters there. So, yeah, but it would seem to me like if, uh, you know, you, you're basically talking about servant workers, indentured servants in Israel, that ordinarily they would be treated pretty well because it would be in the master's benefit to treat them well uh, in order to, to, you know, get back what he's owed or, or something to that effect. Uh, but it, at the same time, you, you have evil, wicked, abusive masters, and a slave might escape from there. And then, although it's not said here, uh, we're, we're always kind of talking about this in this series, is that some of these matters have to be adjudicated, they have to be figured out, they have to be investigated by the elders of the gate, the elders uh, and the priests, um, and determine whether this is a, a legitimate flight. Now, I wonder, and I want to jump ahead to uh, quickly to the applications in our world, but these, what's happening here is a kind of sanctuary city for, for slaves who've been abused. And I wonder, I, I can't help but thinking that that applies, for example, in, especially in the Western world and in the United States, and I, probably England too, although I don't know England's laws with regard to this, for, for people seeking asylum uh, from um, from countries, from cultures and communities of severe uh, abuse and and uh, and trouble, it would seem like this this kind of passage would would indeed be a source for us to say, hey, yeah, that's legitimate. That that's really something that should happen. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a valid application. I mean, as you said, you have there are things to be adjudicated and things to be figured out there. But I think the the general principle works, and I think it. it I mean, the theological background is what you already pointed to here, Jeff, uh, when you pointed to the common language from verse fourteen to verse fifteen. In verse fourteen, it's the verb deliver. Yahweh walks uh, in the midst of your camp to deliver you. In the next one, it's the slave who has been delivered or has delivered himself has escaped. Uh, from his master, and verse fourteen is I was is referring to deliverance from enemies, but it's the language of Exodus. Also, uh, Israel exists as a as a nation of fugitive slaves, as it were. They they were claimed by another master. Uh, Yahweh intervened and rescued them from that master. Uh, and once they're freed from that master, they're not going to be returned to that master. So escaped slaves kind of fit in with Israel because Israel is a nation of escaped, escaped slaves. So there's this kind of theological grounding for it. Uh, and, you know, this this verse almost becomes an allegory of Israel's experience. A, a slave who's doing what Israel has done should be treated as Israel had been treated. I think it also does point to a kind of the nature of slavery. And it, it would apply, I guess, particularly if we're thinking of this in terms of slaves that are escaping from other other nations where they are chattel, as Jeff mentioned. They're not going to be treated as chattel. Certainly within Israel, you don't have other Israelites that are treated as chattel of uh, Israelite masters. They're not owned by them. But this suggests that the master-slave relationship is not a, is not a relationship of owner 
ownership, if we're putting if we're putting this under the eighth eighth word heading, to receive a slave who has escaped from his master and to not return him is not to steal from the master because there's not uh, the same kind of ownership claim. Maybe he's forfeited them, but um, the ownership uh, claim that the master have is not is not absolute. And it is interesting contrast to the uh, previous chapter where which begins with if you if you find your neighbor's animal wandering away you have to return it to him or take it to your house for safekeeping until he comes to find it animals have to be returned because they're owned slaves don't like human beings aren't treated as chattel in that in the same way that's worth thinking that the israelite slave would have been released in the seventh year and he would have been released as um expected with gifts and with enough to get himself started and so the person who fled from an Israelite master would be forfeiting those benefits and also the writing off of whatever debt brought him into slavery in the first place. And so it would not, it would be a decision that an Israelite slave would lose something from. Um, even if he was not going to go back into slavery, he would lose some of the privileges of going through that process. And so it was either a harsh master or a foreign slave that would be most likely, or an Israelite with a harsh master or a foreign slave that would be most likely to um, need this sort of law. Right. And a harsh master would again fit with the Exodus backdrop, wouldn't it? And would make good sense of the way in which really throughout the law as a whole, I guess, the cry of a slave or an oppressed person just seems to have a particular um power to it and um, i'm thinking of um i think it's somewhere in exodus 22 when the lord saying if you're mistreating if you're treating harshly and they cry unto me then i'll, I'll require it from from your hand and i think in the next chapter there's um reference to the cry of someone towards the end uh, yes. cry of a mistreated worker and and so that that seems um all to be rooted in in the exodus event So the, the verse 16 is uh, just adds to the uh, kind of an astonishing requirement. So it's not just that the slave is received and not returned to his master. He's also not, you know, if you're thinking about a foreign slave that comes into your uh, into Israel, or as Jeff was talking, somebody who's escaping from some kind of oppressive uh, tyranny and comes into Israel, and Israel provides sanctuary for them. Israel does not set up a refugee camp where the refugees and 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 escaped slaves live, uh, they live in the midst, uh, in the place he chooses, in one of your gates, which is you know kind of a kind of an escalating series of requirements. Not just does he live among you, but he he gets to choose the place where he's going to go, and then gates. I mean, it's towns, but gates has this connotation of being the place of. Uh, uh, judgment and authority. Maybe, maybe here that's connotation that they're. It's more of a liminal position. I mean, the Lot is living at the gates of Sodom, which suggests he bears some authority in Sodom, but also suggests that he's kind of has one foot in and one foot out of Sodom. So maybe that's the connotation here. But in any case, um, it's not uh, not mistreating the slave doesn't just mean that you don't beat him up. It means that you you basically free him to uh, choose where he wants to be in the land. If I could just add to that too, there's a there's a theological root to this also, which is intriguing. Uh, the place that he shall choose, uh, that phrase is used repeatedly in in Deuteronomy, 
but it's uh, usually almost, I think every other time it's used, it's referring to Yahweh's choice of the place that he's going to dwell. Uh, and now that same privilege of choosing a place to dwell is extended to a, an escaped slave. And it's almost, you almost get the uh, uh, sense, if you extend the al uh, uh, Exodus allegory, it's not just Israel that's an escaped slave, but in some sense, Yahweh, by identifying with Israel, Pharaoh attempted to enslave him too. And so he himself is the escaped slave, and he comes into the land and he chooses a place to dwell, and then he extends that again, that extends that choice to escape slaves who are, you know, have gone through the same experience as Israel, in some sense, the same experience that Yahweh himself did. How does this relate to uh, Paul's letter to Philemon about Onesimus, the escaped slave who seemingly has stolen from Philemon? And Paul writes him back and says, need to receive this man back because now he's a brother. And basically, take him in as part of your household, part of your family, and not as a slave. I mean, it's different, but it, it also syncs with the notion that even though in the Roman system, Onesimus might have been owned by Philemon, nevertheless, the gospel seems to have um, given him a release, delivered him from that ownership, uh, and Paul's appealing to Philemon to recognize that. Yeah, so is your question is uh, about how this law relates to what Paul's, Paul's actions? Uh, should he, in fact, have returned Onesimus, or should he have not? Is that, is that what you're asking? Well, yeah, it, it actually, it's a different situation. But Paul actually does return him, but with the appeal that he not be treated anymore as a slave. So Onesimus is not someone who was abused, someone who was driven out or had to escape. Uh, he's actually in the wrong. He, he was a thief, apparently, and might even owe something to Philemon, his master, which Paul promises to pay, to pay back himself. But I, I guess it's just an instance of, of uh, the humanizing of the situation and taking it out of the realm of, of ownership, like you were talking about before, Peter. And that's also happening here with a slave that escapes from a tyrannical owner, is you're giving him a new home, you're letting him choose where he lives, you're basically um, rehumanizing him, uh, reincorporating him back into the uh, in the community of Israel or or incorporating him into the community of Israel for the first time, one way or the other. Yeah, it's a nice example, Jeff, because it feels to aim towards the transformation of the society where the slave is originally from. So rather than him being taken with Paul or incorporated into some Christian community elsewhere, he goes back, but it's as if you're trying to simulate an Exodus-like situation with his original master. And so it seems to have to do more with transformation than with um, uh, escape and, and going elsewhere. Yeah, and so James, are you are you suggesting that um, in some way uh, both Deuteronomy 23 and Paul are aiming at the same overall, have the same overall aim, which is to, because the, 
this person in, in Deuteronomy 23, the person comes in as a slave and then is uh, kind of given the run of the land. And that's part of the establishment of an Israel that is a, a place of refuge for those who are mistreated. Is that it? So, and Paul is aiming at the same kind of transformation. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So he's not, he's not canceling the law, but rather fulfilling it in a, in a sense. Yeah. Well, what was previously achieved across nations is, is achieved in a, in a different way. It's not Israel versus non Israel anymore, but different kind of distinction. Right, right. Uh, the next uh, the next law in verses uh, seventeen and eighteen uh, has to do with uh, cult prostitutes and harlotry. Verse seventeen: None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, nor shall any of the sons of Israel be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the hire of a harlot or the wages of a dog into the house of Yahweh your God for any votive offering. For both of these are an abomination to Yahweh your God. Um, one of the one of the puzzles here is to figure out the meaning of the terms in verse 17. They're translated as cult prostitute. The first use is a form of kadash, which means holy, a feminine form. And the second is a masculine form of the same root. A holy one, I mean, if you're just being strictly, uh, just translating strictly on the basis of the term, uh, just a, a dedicated one or a holy one. But I think it's uh I think the translation is appropriate given what verse 18 goes on to talk about. So you have a you have an, a, a structural similarity between verses 17 and 18. You have a daughter and a son, and then a harlot and a dog. So you have a feminine, a female, male, female, male. That's the that's the rhythm. So the the reference of harlotry in verse 18, I think, does help us to interpret who the Cult, who the Kadash is uh, in verse 17. So the daughter of Israel and the harlot are the same person. One of them is a, is a dedicated prostitute in a temple, which means that the dog uh, and the son of Israel who becomes a cult prostitute, those are also analogous to each other. So the, the law is doubled. Uh, one of them, uh, on the one hand, there's a prohibition of any of the sons or daughters of Israel from becoming cult prostitutes, dedicated ones that are that are are devoted to harlotry and, and prostitution. Uh, and then the law in verse 18 has to do with um, the income of that profession uh, is an abomination. The Lord doesn't want that brought into his house. In many of these cases, we have commandments that would seem to belong under other categories. So we've thought about the way that the 10 words are explored in chapters 6 to 26, and this is a commandment that in many ways could fit under the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, or it could also relate to other aspects. For instance, the third commandment, that Israel is holy to the Lord, and therefore they cannot take what is the Lord's and give it to another. And here, by placing this under the eighth commandment, it gives us a way maybe of seeing part of the deeper logic and the intertwining of the principles that we have elsewhere in the law. And so every single commandment that could appear under different categories, where it appears, gives us a particular angle upon that commandment, a particular way of seeing some facets of it that might not be so easily visible in other locations. One of the things that comes out here is the fact that money can't be reduced to a mere 
neutral means of exchange. And it's very easy to see money itself as a sort of laundering of the um, activity by which that money was gained. That money as such is something as a pure instrumental means and um, cannot be subjected to the sort of ends and values that would otherwise judge our actions. There's no sense of bad money making. It's just if you've made money, then it's good money making. But here there's a clear understanding that there is um, something about the character of money itself that carries a, a history of the actions done to, to gain it. And so there's no way in which we can launder um, money that's been obtained by evil means in offering it to the Lord or by offering it in some other activity that may be lawful, but that money, if obtained in an unlawful manner, um, retains that character. And so the ill-gotten gains of the thief or the person who's stolen themselves from the Lord, given themselves to um, the service of some cult as a prostitute, they cannot right that wrong by laundering the money in giving it to the service of the Lord. That's not how money works, even though we can easily think of money that way. Alistair, I was, I was thinking of something similar in terms of, yeah, the sense in which money seems to have this history with it, and, it, and it's not just laundered or, or made useful. But, I mean, I was then wondering what sort of scenario this actually envisages. I mean, you would think that a prostitute or or the wages of a dog, it, whatever that entails exactly, you would think that kind of person would be unlikely to go into the house of the Lord to pay some kind of vow. And so is the, is the idea that it just inherits this, it inherits, sorry, this ongoing status of being unclean. You know, if, if a prostitute pays with some money like that for some goods in the market, does then the market, uh, you know, the person who has re received that has to have to treat it differently. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know exactly what situation is, is in mind here. I would see that very much as similar to principles of idle food in um, 1 Corinthians, that the person who knowingly received was in possession of stolen goods or in possession of money that had been obtained in a wicked way. They have a culpability, perhaps, that the person who's unaware does not. Maybe we could think about some examples within Scripture. I'd one of the possible examples that comes to mind is the story of Judges 17 and the money that is stolen and then returned trying to deal with the, the curse that the mother places upon Micah by making the carved image. Yeah, Alistair, I was thinking of 1 Corinthians 8 also when you were talking about money having a history. Think, I'm not sure that, that history is uh, is extended very long. I think it, as you just said, it depends on knowing where the money is coming from. Uh, so Paul says, you know, uh, the food doesn't. The food has a history, um, but if it comes into the market, you just don't ask questions. You eat it. Um, but if someone tells you, hey, this food was off to idols, uh, then you got then you need to be careful about. Uh, 
becoming a scandal to other people. So I think the same kind of thing would apply in some sense here, so that uh, a priest or a Levite or whoever administers the payment for these vows would have to have some knowledge that this man or this woman has earned this money, you know, at a shrine at a high place or whatever. That seem it seems like this also would come into play maybe soon after Moses, maybe soon after they go into the land. But we know from uh later history that uh you have high places and shrines and a syncretistic kind of liturgical practices going on in Israel where this would be this would be a, a thing and it would be a, a big temptation for uh, whoever's administering the treasury whether in the tabernacle or temple to it'd be a temptation for them to take this money and say well it doesn't matter where it comes from in that sense it would have a history and you did, you wouldn't want this this money would be tainted it certainly seems to me that there are broader principles here that are very relevant for certain um, things that we need to deal with in our society, where we have extremely extended supply chains, and often there is injustice at some point in those supply chains. And so these sorts of questions of complicity, for instance, with a sweatshop when we buy some garment and we do not know its origin, um, to what extent are we culpable for that? And so I think the principles of First Corinthians and this sort of principle, they need to be played out very carefully as we think about our participation in an economy where there are often, there's a history to things that we innocently um, obtain that is far less savory. And on the one hand, we may not be fully culpable, but at the same time, there is a sense of responsibility and guilt that does extend for some distance. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I'm not, I don't want to, yeah, I didn't mean, so in, in a modern era, we can know, we can often know these uh, supply chains. We can know where this was manufactured, how it was manufactured using slave labor or something like that. Uh, and I think then, yeah, we should definitely make choices, make wise and, and righteous choices, uh, but oftentimes we don't know. And maybe maybe more importantly here, uh, an ecclesiastical liturgical kind of reference is, is the money that comes in to the church through the tithe or through offerings. What happens when we know that this money was obtained through some illegal ways, illegal kinds of, of uh businesses or or drug money or whatever um and i also wonder about this too i um and this is probably a whole nother topic but this whole thing about gambling and lotteries which prey on the poor uh, which victimize poor people uh, much more than they do rich and and uh then all this money comes flowing into our educational coffers or and even sometimes into the church. When is it right for us to say, no, this is not right. We really shouldn't be taking this money because we know we know something of the history of it. And I guess that's your point, Elster, is we need to be careful to know if we can 
and especially when we do, the history of the, the money has so that we can make righteous decisions about whether to receive it or not to receive it. Yeah. Well, I'd throw, throw a few things in there. Uh, first of all, the, I mean, the specific thing that's in view here is uh, wages of a harlot, uh, however, a harlot wages of a dog brought into the house of the Lord. So the question of knowledge is the, Yahweh's knowledge of the history that's behind it. And I, I'm not clear on how you're using the meat sacrifice to idols and applying it here because Paul says, as Jeff mentioned, Paul says, if it's available on the market, you eat it without asking questions about its origin. You don't, it, idols are nothing. And so you just buy it and you consume it. The thing that you consider uh, is not whether it's tainted by its origins, but whether by eating it, you are offending a, a brother with a weaker conscience. So it's not clear how to me to me how that applies in the situations you're describing that um, you know there's there's some kind of uh, you're entangled somehow in the oppression of somebody who's producing your sneakers because you're buying the sneakers. Uh, I, you can maybe make an ethical case. I just don't see how the meat sacrifice to idols is is leading you in that to that conclusion. My point is more that there is a a limitation upon complicity and responsibility. Um, if we have the principle that Paul's laying out in chapters 8 to 10 of First Corinthians, we have an understanding of certain cases where you must not eat, first of all, when you cause your brother to stumble, and also in situations where there is a, an actual idol feast that's being celebrated, um, the participants in the altar, the participants in the table of the Lord, and then the participants in the table of demons. And that enables us, I think, to put a check upon taking this principle too far in a way that for um, someone who's struggling with scrupulosity would lead them just to opt out of the marketplace altogether. There's no way to actually be sure that what they're participating in isn't tainted and rendering, rendering them culpable. I think another thing, picking up on some of Jeff, Jeff's points here, is that if you know where the money has come from, and if you receive it and um, don't make an objection, that morally compromises you, not just because you've received dirty money, but it makes it very difficult for you to speak out against the wickedness that was used to obtain it. And there are a great many churches and other agencies that have been compromised by receiving money from gambling or money from um, other sources that they know are wrong. And yet, because they've received it, they don't dare speak against that particular sin anymore. Yes, I, I mean, I have quite a few questions about this. So, I mean, one, there's the complication that when we're talking about that money, it's quite easy to think about that in this context, in Deuteronomy 23, because you can talk about you know, that bit of silver over there, that shekel, etc. But what you're receiving money for or from these days is much more difficult, especially if it's an electronic transaction or, or, or something. Is it that money that was obtained by gambling or, or, or something? Or was it the money that the guy got in a day job or, or, or something? So that seems to be a, a, um, a complication. But then I was sort of like Peter, or maybe this is like Peter, or, or maybe it isn't, I'm not sure, but I was more inclined to see this as 
part of the general shift we've noted to a different situation in the new covenant here because it seems different from the one corinthians principle to me because there the idea is that the the meat the idol is nothing in and of itself it doesn't carry this kind of idol stain with it the whole issue is how you see it and whether it's going to defile your neighbor's conscience or not whereas here the logic seems to be that that money does kind of carry this um, unrighteousness with it because of the way that it was earned. So I, I was more inclined to see this as a contrast in the new covenant where the earth is the Lord and, and, and the fullness of it. And there is more freedom almost to baptize things within a Christian um, context. So you know, I'll be keen to follow up some of those things and just sorry to, to throw one more thing in i'm still not clear how this works i mean if i'm selling grain or something and a prostitute wants to come and buy it from me am i okay to accept his or her money and to use that to buy some more grain myself but not to use it in the house of the lord like and if so why so i i have yeah many questions <laughs> I think the, On the question the, my, of... my point wasn't about the shift from old to new, but my point was about partly about the specifics of the law, which have to do not with exchanges in the marketplace, people being tainted by exchanges, um, you know, a harlot paying you for food. That's not in view. What's in view is what's brought it before the Lord. That doesn't mean that we can't reason about that other scenario, but, um, and that's, you know, that's where the, the question about how can somebody know it's the Lord who's receiving it. One other thought, and I know Alistair wants to jump in here, but one other thought, I wonder if, uh, in, uh, surely we need to think about this, not just in terms of individual harlots or individual cult prostitutes, but in terms of Israel as the cult prostitute, the holy one who has prostituted herself to the nations. Uh, and so her offerings as a whole, because she's devoted to idols, uh, have become an ab abominable to the Lord. So maybe that will loosen up the the question a little bit, because uh, the I think there's there is a as we saw in the last section there's a kind of allegorical dimension to this that's that's dealing with Israel as a people. I think that's definitely part of the picture. The way that um, Isaiah and elsewhere speak about the blood that's on Israel's hands as they offer their gifts, and they will not be received for that reason. Besides that, I think on James's point about the movement from old to new covenant, Christ talks about unrighteous mammon, um, which suggests there's still something complicated about um money that it carries something with it um and that principle is not entirely done away with sorry in in terms of how this is working though peter you, you were saying that this isn't talking about someone who's like bought grain or or, or something from a prostitute but then sure surely the text is like you shall not bring the fear of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord. Uh, so, I mean, that doesn't feel like it's talking to the prostitute. The prostitute, yeah, interesting. I was assuming that I was assuming that uh, it was, but you're right. It's, it seems to be phrased. Uh, although the the phrasing too is, I mean, it's a liturgical phrasing. You shall not bring near. It's uh, well, it's bow. It's not korban, but kab, uh, karav. But it's still that's the term that's used in in kind of um, yeah in in liturgical settings. I was taking it to be the higher the prostitute, but you're right that the the phrasing seems to distance itself from 
the prostitute or the dog, which again, maybe uh, if you, if you loosen it up and think about harlotry in a, in a more symbolic or metaphorical sense, then that, that makes, um, they would certainly apply as, as Alistair said, it applied to that kind of scenario. I mean, I, I wonder if some of the context is helpful here. I mean, the whole thing is about, so it, it's, what you bring into the house of the Lord in um, verse 18, so sort of Tavi, as opposed to the whole sort of Yavo and Tavo of, of the first um, bit of the text, you know, who who can come into the house of the Lord and, and or sorry, the assembly, an Ammonite, a Moabite, you know, someone with certain defects, etc. And so contextually, history does seem to be in mind, doesn't it? I.e. what the Ammonites and Moabites did historically. And so I wonder if, yeah, there, there is more of an emphasis on the history of the money here. Yeah. And I, I would, the analogy I was thinking of, the um, Drew Johnson, when he talks about uh, sacrifices, he talks about sacrifices having a history. You can have a, um, a perfectly blemishless goat that you're bringing in for sacrifice. But if you stole it, then it's not acceptable to the Lord. It's the whole... It's the whole uh, history of your relationship to that animal that's in that the Lord is reviewing and judging. Uh, and I think, again, if you put it in that liturgical context, then the Lord is the one who's enforcing this, as it were. And it's not it's not directly, at least, about marketplace transactions. There's also the fact that it emphasizes not that no one should be a cult prostitute, um, but that None of the sons or daughters of Israel should be cult prostitutes. There is something about that activity by a son or daughter of Israel that is stealing from the Lord. And then if they're giving the money from that, those actions to the Lord, they are stealing and presenting the fruits of their theft to the Lord. And they've trespassed in taking themselves from the Lord's Lord and offering them to the service of some false god, but also to um, fornication. And then they are coming back to the Lord as if they could cover up for that by giving him some of the fruit of their sin. Yeah, remember Ananias and Sapphira who come and present their gifts at the feet of the apostles, and that money is not accepted. They are not accepted. Uh, the other point about this fascinating maybe this is a stretch i don't think it is israel herself in the end ends up becoming a prostitute uh, she is the whore of babylon and her wealth and wages are not brought into the house the final house of the lord the church she is she is destroyed can i bring in a, a kind of a side issue but when i when i um pondered a little bit. Uh, the terminology of dog here is unusual and interesting. Dogs don't appear all that much in the Bible. And uh, here it seems to be a reference to, in the context, as I said, it's a reference to a male prostitute, maybe a male cult prostitute in particular. And I started thinking about the other dog passages in the Bible uh, and wondered if you sometimes have that uh, overtone, that connotation, not only of uh, scavengers and predators, but specifically of sexual predators. The fact that dogs lick up the blood of Jezebel. Jezebel appears in this kind of harlot getup uh, before she's thrown down from the wall and and uh, is is trampled. 
and then the dogs come and lick up the blood. Or David in Psalm 22, who claims to be surrounded by dogs. You think that's, you know, dogs nipping at his heels. Dogs are trying to attack him. But if we take the, the connotation in Deuteronomy 23, 18, then dog is a sexual predator. And it's almost, David is almost in a, in that sense, David being kind of a Sodom. He'd be like the the messengers to Sodom, who's being assaulted uh, and sexually assaulted. I'm not talking about literally literal sexual assault. From David, but perhaps that too. But that's the way he's picturing them. He's portraying them as sodomites who are ganging up on him and uh, trying to rape him, not just as animal scavengers who are trying to trying to bite him. We have references to dogs, of course, at the very end of Revelation. The dogs are associated with the um, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, and idolaters who are left outside of the city. And then Paul also warns about dogs in Philippians 3.2. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.